Well, thank you. It's wonderful to be with you tonight. Just love the worship and being part of this community. So thank you for having us. And my joy tonight to speak on a topic, um, women in ministry or a theology of women. And um, really, when you come to a topic like this, um, you have to stop, pause, and consider the context in which it was written. That's so important. Context is everything. And when I was thinking about that, I thought of a little story <clears throat> of somebody from the Mississippi Delta. It was a poor area. It's an area where a lot of farmers still grow produce. And there was a man by the name of Baba Johnson. They call everybody Baba in that part of the world. And this was Baba Johnson, and he had a farm, and he'd grow vegetables. And every now and again, he would have an excess of produce, and he would take that produce into town. He'd pack up his a horse and his donkey, and he'd go into town and sell the produce. And one day he was going across an intersection, and a truck hit Baba Johnson. And everything went, the horse, the donkey, Baba Johnson survived. But a number of months later, he had to go to court. And Baba Johnson arrived in court, and he was bandaged up, he was in a wheelchair, he had plaster on his legs, he had a brace on he looked a terrible sight, and he was wheeled into the court, and when he got into the court, the attorney for the truck driver looked at him and said, Judge, we've got a problem here, and the judge called them both up to the bench. He said, Judge, I have it on my record here, right here, it says that when the truck hit Baba Johnson, afterwards the policeman went up to him, and he said, I am fine, I am doing very good. So this, this, is, a big, this is a big act. This, this, the, there's something wrong with this. And so Baba Johnson said, Judge, can I please explain? And the judge said, yes, I'd like to hear your explanation. He said, well, he said, after the truck hit me, my donkey went in that direction, my horse went in that direction, the policeman came up, he looked at the horse. There was blood coming out of the horse's mouth. And the, the policeman got his gun and shot, shot the horse. He said, then he went up to my donkey and blood was coming out of the donkey's mouth. And the donkey was just in a terrible state. And with his gun still smoking, shot the donkey. He said, then he came up to me, your honor. And he said, how are you doing, sir? And he said, I'm doing fine, thank you very much. Context is everything. It's everything. And it's particularly true when we come to the Bible. See, as much as we would love, or I would love at any rate, to kind of almost erase some of my culture, so that I could look at the Bible through just clean eyes, I can't. I just can't. I am immersed in a culture. I'm absolutely immersed in a culture. And so when I come to the text, I come to the text with my culture. My culture's behind me when I read the biblical text. And that's why it's very, very important for you to read the text as it was understood in the first century. Because if you read it with 21st century eyes, you're going to read it 
from your context and not understand what was being said in that context. And that makes all the difference. So let me just start with maybe a little story that doesn't in any way shape the theology of women, but it might just help to set women in the context that I'm trying to set women in. So I love the book of John. The book of John, I love it because it's full of wonderful stories and lots of stories about women. You know, John chapter 4, John chapter 8, the beautiful chapter, John 20, all those amazing stories. There's so many stories in John about women. But the one in four is pertinent to us understanding the context. You see, it says Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he had to pass through Samaria. Now, if any of you understand that text, you'll understand that there was great hostility between Jews and Samaritans. So Jews, did, they, they wouldn't even set foot on Samaritan soil. They'd take the long route round. But it says in that text that Jesus went through Samaria. He went through Samaria. Why? Because he had an appointment with a woman at the well. And it says, he says to the woman, woman, give me a drink. And she's immediately startled. Sir, why are you asking me, a woman? And we know what kind of woman she was. It tells us she'd have five husbands. That's not the point. The point is, in this context, Jesus was doing something incredible. He was challenging two of the prevailing cultural assumptions of the day. Racism and sexism. Jesus was challenging two of the prevailing cultural assumptions of the day, racism and sexism. Jesus came to earth to restore dignity to women. I know that that does not expound the, the, the text of women in ministry at all, but what I wanted to do with that passage was place women in their rightful position, the way Jesus saw women, not the way the first century men saw women, because you see, in the first century, a rabbi would not talk to a woman, and especially not in public. And that's why at the end of that chapter, it says, when the disciples came, they were, what's he? He's talking to a woman. Now what? The Pharisees are going to be down our throats again. Oh, look at this. They're freaking because Jesus is talking to her because he's breaking the social standard of the day. He's defying it. Why? Because Jesus loved women and he came to place them in their rightful position. So it doesn't help my argument at all. But what it does do is say that Jesus came to put women in the place that they should be. And so did the Apostle Paul, unlike what some people have done to Scripture to try to prove that he didn't do it. So let me start with this. Being male and female is God's order of creation. Let's never forget that, especially in the crazy day in which we live. Genesis 1 to 3 becomes very pertinent for us as Christ followers in a world that's trying to deny that women are XX and men are XY and there's no gender and what are you, you're an it or a... You know, in some schools in the United States, they're not even allowed to say good morning, boys and girls anymore. They're not allowed to do it. It's discrimination, so they say. So we have to understand 
that male and female is God's order of creation. Now, if we look at a scripture, it just, once again, this, now hear me on this. This is not a scripture about ministry, but it is a scripture that's important for us to understand. Paul talking in Galatians 3.28, you know it all. There is neither Jew nor Greek, Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abram's seed and heirs according to the promise. Paul's here, Paul's point here is not saying women, women can be in ministry. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying we're all one family. We are all one family. And what we must understand is our unique differences. They are unique, but it doesn't, it doesn't, have, any, it ha- doesn't have anything to do with you being accepted or not accepted. You see, in the Middle East, women were actually at the bottom rung of the ladder. Truly they were. Did you, did you know that a woman couldn't own property? She couldn't vote in a court of law? She was property. She was the property of her husband. And before that, she was the property of her father. She couldn't own land. She belonged to that man, and that was how she was treated. Our differences are not obliterated. They are irrelevant for membership and status. We affirm both male and female. We affirm both male and female, and we all have our uniquenesses. So let's just look briefly, because obviously there's not a lot of time, and all I hope that it does is I hope this inspires you to look further into the text and to do your own study. But let me, let me provoke you further to thought. So the Gospels and Acts. Now let me just say this. It doesn't help to ignore the fact that Jesus had 12 disciples and all of them were men. I can't ignore that fact. He had 12 disciples and they were all men. But there were obviously some cultural issues in that day whereby Jesus chose 12 men. But do you know that every single one of those 12 at some stage left Jesus? But when you get to Acts chapter 20, the very first person to go to the tomb is a woman. The very first person to see the resurrected Jesus, John 20, sorry. The very first person to see the resurrected Jesus is a woman. And the very first person to go and tell the disciples is a woman. So in the words of a lot of theologians, this woman was the first apostle. This woman was the first apostle. She was the one that carried the news. She was the one that saw the resurrected resurrected Jesus. An amazing thing. Just stop and contemplate that for a minute. It's a powerful, powerful scripture. And when you read the text, you understand just how powerful the scripture is. Think of the anointing in John chapter 12. Do you remember that just before the burial? A woman comes and anoints Jesus. That was in itself a priestly function that a woman did. And Jesus was well aware of it, that this was a priestly 
function. In Romans chapter 16, I love this portion of, of, of um, the scripture. The text is, we, we often look at Romans 16 as being one of the, you know, let's get through this passage very quickly kind of passage because it's just names and, you know, oh, let's get through it quickly. But actually, you have to stop and contemplate this passage for a while because it starts off with, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon. And deacon can be male or female, but this deacon is understood in terms of 1 Timothy 3 verse 8 and 11 and 12. This is Phoebe. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church in Kenkria. Now, the person carrying the book, this letter, was Phoebe. And she, more than not, more likely than not, had the task of actually reading this letter to the church. So Phoebe had a very important role here, and that's why Paul is stressing it. I'm commending Phoebe to you. This is a woman that's labored in the Lord. But you go on, and he's just talking over and over again about countless women. In fact, there are 17 women mentioned in this passage. Greet Priscilla. Um, greet Mary, who worked for me. Greet Adronicus and Junior, my fellow Jews, who have been in prison with me. They're outstanding among the apostles. Now, let me tell you this. Junior is not a man. Junior is a woman, and here Paul said, an outstanding apostle. Now, Junior, until the 19th century, the patristics had no problem understanding that Junior was a woman. There was no debate about it until the 19th century when we began to get issues with uh, women in ministry, and so we try to use the text to say women couldn't be used in ministry. Have you ever pondered that a lot of the people that say women can't be used in ministry are the people that say women can go as missionaries to other countries? They, it's fine for you to go as a missionary to another country, but you can't speak to your own people. You, you can't speak to men in your own nationality, but you can go out there to those people, those savage people, those... What does it say about the people out there? What does it say? That we can be missionary. I can be a missionary and go to Indonesia and preach the gospel there, but I can't be a missionary to my own people because I'm not seen as worthy. And I think that's exactly what Jesus was dealing with in the first century text. He was putting women back in their rightful position. And whether you want to see it or not, it is true that throughout the text, Paul affirms the position of woman, and he affirms over and over, I'll let you read the Romans 16, the Romans 16 text on your own. But remember, that's an important part. Just like Romans 14 affirms our different cultural and ethnic practices. Be convinced in your own mind about food and meat. Be convinced in your own mind. So this chapter deeply affirms the position of women in ministry. And for those of us who, who struggle, because when the NIV um, group got together and they were looking at translating this passage again, there was no way that they could dispute that Junior was a woman. There was no way that they could dispute it. So, um, 
I, I love that. I love that Paul affirms the place of women over and over again. So John 20, beautiful text. Romans 16. Let's look at Luke 10, because Luke 10 is also one of those texts that um, a lot of people turn to and um, debate about. And um, we think of Mary as the adoring um, the adoring person sitting, looking longingly at, at Jesus. But let's look at this. First century context again, okay? Very, very important. <clears throat> Most of us have heard the sermon that Martha was the one that worked in the kitchen and Mary was the one that wanted to just sit and listen to Jesus. What was really happening here, let me say, was Mary was in the male part of the house, and Martha was in the other part of the house. That's what was happening. Mary was in the male part of the house, and this equates to the whole Gamaliel-Paul teaching, where Paul sat at the feet of Gamaliel, and Mary sits at the feet of Jesus. And when you sit at the feet of the teacher, of the rabbi, it is so that you can learn so that you can become a teacher. So we, I mean, Mary, uh, Martha was probably pretty angry with Mary, like yeah, I'm doing all the work and there she is sitting. But what she was really mad about, and you need to hear this, what M Martha was really mad about was Mary's breaking social convention of the day. She shouldn't be in the male side of the house. She shouldn't be sitting at Jesus' feet with the others, learning from the rabbi, but, Jesus, but Mary wanted to. She wanted to learn because she also wanted to teach. So Jesus was teaching Mary, and Mary was learning from Jesus, sitting in the male part of the house. That's important for you to understand. If you don't understand that context, you miss the whole, you, you miss the message. You have to understand what was happening in this first century context. It's important for us to understand. Another interesting fact is that Ken Bailey, a Middle Eastern and, uh, scholar and missionary, he's written a number of books. He wrote Jesus in the Middle Eastern um, Eyes, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, and Paul Through Mediterranean Eyes. Good scholars to read if you want to look at, if you're particularly interested in um, first century context. He points out about Acts chapter 3. This is important. We, Acts chapter 3, that Paul was gathering the men and women to persecute them. Ken Bailey says, Paul was gathering the men and the women. It says clearly he was getting men and women to persecute them before he had his Damascus Road experience. He said... There's no reason for us to believe that those women were anything other than leaders because if they were not leaders, Paul would not be gathering them to be persecuted. So he was gathering men and women who were leaders in the church. And by now, it's becoming quite evident that women do have a very prominent place in the church and were having a huge impact in society and were impacting the day and the people and the age in which they lived. And the church were, uh, and uh, outside, uh, the, the synagogue were realizing the impact of not only the men, but the women in the church. 
So that's important for us to note as well. Of course, some of the other important scriptures that we must come to is the passage in 1 Corinthians 14, 33 to 35. Let me turn to that passage, 1 Corinthians. Is it up there? This is, the, this is one of the favorite passages for... Um, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. All of us have heard this passage. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. So how this text has been used against women, this is one of the big texts. Ken Bailey, once again, who studied Middle Eastern culture and been a missionary in that area, and some of the greatest scholars go to Ken Bailey. Um, this is what he says about that particular day and time. What was happening is that um, when, the, when they preached in the synagogue, it was in classical Arabic. The men would sit on one side and the women would sit on the other side. So they were divided, and that still happens in some cultures today. When the synagogue leader, ruler, spoke in classical Arabic, the woman would not have understood because they only spoke the local dialect. So the men were the ones who understood what was going on. The woman on this side, and obviously Ken Bailey says he's rambling on and on, on and the women start whispering, and they're getting a little bit noisy because they don't know what's going on. They start whispering, and he says, will you women please be quiet in church? Please, be silent. And they rumble and rumble, and then he, go home and ask your husband about it. Go home and ask your husband. We know you don't understand what's going on. We're glad you're here, but you need to go home afterwards and ask your husband about what, what's been taught in church. So that scripture is very important to understand. You see once again what I'm trying to say? Context, context, context. Because what I do is I read this with my first century eyes. And I read that women today don't like some of these scriptures. In fact, they get mad. You know, like, what's happening here? What's happening is it's a first century context which we need to understand so that we can understand what is really happening. And when we really understand what's happening, it puts the whole thing in a different light. So let me just say this, okay? If women were to be silent, then why do we go back to the text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul tells them how to dress and how to look after their hair, how to make sure their hair is beautifully groomed before they pray or prophesy in church. If they weren't to pray or prophesy in church, why would Paul be telling them to be silent? So take the two texts and understand them correctly. The one is saying, yeah, when you pray and, and you prophesy, please be dressed appropriately, and I'll speak a little bit more about that in a while. Be dressed, do everything appropriate. And it's like, this is the way women dressed. 
it was culturally conditioned. This is the way they, they did their hair and they dressed for church. We don't come to church in bikinis. And if we did, everybody would look at us. And it's the same, as, it's the same context here. People dressed in a particular way, women dressed in a particular way because that was cultural conditioning. And so you have to understand that. So when Paul was speaking here and saying, women be quiet in church, it, it's not saying women don't have a voice in church. No, because earlier in chapter 11, just three chapters prior to that, he's telling us that women must pray and prophesy, but do it appropriately and dress decently. So understand the context once again. Now we come to one of those um, extremely interesting texts um, that I'm sure most of you have used, have heard used um, magnificently against women. It's the Timothy text. Okay, I'm going to read... Um, from verse 8, therefore I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety, adorning themselves not with elaborate hairstyles, actually the original braid, braiding the hair, or gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess to worship God. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. Now, am I being sinful by standing up here and teaching the word? Because from this position, it looks like it, doesn't it? Context. Context is vital here. So Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's saying, go to Ephesus or stay in Ephesus because there's some teaching that's going around that's not very good, and he wants Timothy to address this poor teaching. Now, you have to understand the context. You see, one of the important things is who's the audience, when was it written, why was it written? What is the cultural context? What is happening here? What is happening here? First of all, we know that in Ephesus, there was the great temple of Diana, a beautiful temple, gilded, amazing, where people from all over the world would come to the temple of Diana. The temple of Diana was run by women priestesses. And males had subservient roles in the temple. This is historical fact. Absolutely historical fact. Many of the women, all the women in the Middle East didn't have the opportunity to learn. So look what's happening here. Paul is saying a woman should learn. So he's validating the fact that women should now start learning. Unlike the, 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 the context in which they, they were little girls and they were raised, now Jesus has come and he's changed everything. He's changed everything. Ladies, let me say, this is so beautiful. It is 
beautiful beyond our wildest comprehension that Jesus was at the tomb and a woman saw him. And he looks down and he says, Mary, Mary. And she immediately recognizes her precious Jesus and invalidating her. And here Paul's saying, woman can learn because Mary learned at the feet of the rabbi Jesus. And you too can learn. The whole order has now changed. There's no male, there's no female, there's no Greek, there's no Jew, there's no Gentile. Everyone is equal, no slave. Do you know that a Jewish man every morning would get up and pray this prayer? I thank God that I'm not a Jew. I, sorry, I thank God that I'm not a Gentile. I thank God I'm not a slave. And I thank God I'm not a woman. Every morning when they said the Shema, they'd say the Shema, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. And then they'd say, I thank God I'm not a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And Paul is basically saying, that's gone. No longer do we need to pray that prayer. Those days are over. Women have equal footing. And here he's saying that they must learn. Now, when it says in quietness and submission, the words actually here learn allude to calmness and self-control. And it's not talking about submission to a husband. It's talking about calm, control to your God and also your teacher, respecting your teacher, honoring your teacher, in, in calmness and quietness learn. And that's basically how everybody should learn. That's how Paul learned at the feet of Gamaliel. That's how all of us should learn, in calmness and in self-control, submissive as unto a teacher. So Paul is talking about this because he's talking to a culture that has not understood that women can learn, and he's basically validating learning. Now, in the temple of Diana, women were the teachers. Women were the teachers. They taught. And what Paul is saying, Timothy, let those women know that just because they assumed that they could teach at the temple of Diana doesn't just mean now that they can come into the church and assume that same authority. They need to learn as well so that they can become teachers. They need to learn. Why, why would you learn unless you could pass on that learning? If you... If, if you it, what, what's the use of learning if you can't pass it on? They need to come and learn in quietness, in submission, in reverence, in respect, so that they can then become teachers. Because you, you assume that role as, as priest, priestesses in the temple of Diana, but no longer have you just automatically got that role. You need to learn, and you need to learn in calmness and in self-control. How beautiful. Jesus changes everything. He changed everything for women. He dealt from the very beginning with those two prevailing cultural assumptions of the day, racism and sexism. He dealt a death blow to both of those. And he explains how important it is for us all to understand 
the place of woman. Let me just say as well, woman led in the Old Testament. I can't look at the text, but some of the texts that are important to consider, Miriam led Israel. It says, I sent Moses to lead you, also Aaron and Miriam. Deborah in Judges, Huldah, the prophet, and the wise woman in 2 Samuel. So, friends, I think just with those, because those are the verses we mainly use, those are the texts that get thrown around the most. And I would say that most of the time, these texts are, are, are abused. Um, but when you do study the Word of God, won't you look at the context? Won't you look at the book, when it was written, why it was written, what's behind the, the, the writer, what, who's been addressed here, and how important it is to stop and take cognizance of the culture. I tell our ladies, our wonderful students at Trinity all the time this, and I would like to say that the same, very same thing to all of you here tonight. The gift of God inside of a woman is as powerful as that same gift inside of a man. When Jesus handed out gifts, he didn't look at the woman and go, aren't they sweet? Look how feminine they are. Oh, so pretty. Let's give them pretty little gifts. Ooh, there you go. Jesus looked at us and he gave us gifts. He gave the same gifts he gave to men, he gave to women. And we have to understand that. And you know, there wasn't a problem in the early, in the early church with women in ministry. There wasn't a problem with the patristics because they, you know, the teaching had come on. And they, we only began to really make a big issue of it in the 19th century when we began to argue about some of these churches and say women had no place in the church. So I just want to validate that position of women in ministry. Um, I wasn't going to do this, but I'm going to do this, and I'm going to go a little bit over time, because Paul took some of my time. He did. But he gave me another introduction, so I'm okay with him. I'm going to ask Paul to come up. I often say, you know, I get asked to do this quite a bit, and I often say, why don't you find a man? Men do a good job of this when they're um, promoting on behalf of women. But this man here is the biggest advocate for women in ministry. And from the very first day I met him, he has encouraged every gift of God inside of me. He's encouraged women. He's had women elders. I've, we've worked together from the day we came into each other's lives. We've been one team together, yoked together in every way. And I want him to come and tell the story about you at the World Council of Churches. And uh, I'll let you finish and pray, Doll. However you unpackage what Carol shares, uh, we just believe it and we thank God for it. We've practiced it and we've seen it work in multiple cultures and situations around the world. But I had a very powerful experience a number of years ago. I play a leadership role in a global organization called the Pentecostal World Fellowship. Uh, I head up the World Alliance for Pentecostal Theological Education and some time ago, I received a request from one of our key uh, international leaders 
saying that the World Council of Churches had put on a special event near Milan in Italy um, that had been facilitated by their Faith and Action Group of the World Council of Churches. Would I please represent the Pentecostal World Fellowship? And uh, I had a little bit of time to do it, which is unusual, and so I got on a plane and uh, flew into Italy and went down and was being accommodated in a monastic setting. Uh, it was an unusual uh, monastery that included uh, non-clergy people, and we met in little rooms for meals, and it was all very nice and, and, and interesting until the first meeting. And I arrived at the first meeting, and to my horror, I was the only male in the room. And uh, I started to text Carol saying, wrong place, wrong time, this is very awkward. There were very key leaders from around the world. The uh, moderator of the uh, Presbyterian Church of the United States was there. Uh, there were key uh, Anglican bishops, women bishops, and there were very significant leaders out of the world of academia. And I did feel really awkward until the next day when two men turned up. One was an, uh, a high churchman from Alexandria in Egypt, and uh, he wasn't much help to me at all. And um, I'm not sure who the other man was. My memory is pretty seared now. But I remember we all had to present a paper. And I'll wrap up and just encourage you to process this thing as a church, as a local uh, community. And uh, I stood up and I started to apologize. I said, I'm really sorry that you've got to put up with me. We should have really looked out for a good woman from our fellowship and sent them. And before I got very long, those women shut me up. And it's very intimidating when there is a majority of women in the room. And uh, <clears throat> I, I, I kind of empathize with Paul, but I think Carol explained the scripture very well. And uh, <clears throat> the first one stood up and she said, please stop now. And I said, why? And uh, she said, we simply do not have enough white males helping validate the role that we play in the life of the church, and we're grateful that you're here, and we celebrate your presence. Well, that got to me. I thought, wow, where have us wimpish men been all of this time? And as I was processing that, a beautiful, gracious woman bishop from Rwanda stood up. She was motherly. She was beautiful in so many ways. Very, very gentle. And I'll never forget what she shared. She said, after the genocide, there were no men left to do the work. She said, us women started to do the work. And then she got a gracious African smile. And in a very humble tone, she said, and the work is going very well. <laughs> and I left repentant for any of the silliness that I had brought to the argument and for not recognizing the grace of God and the gift of God upon us all, including the precious ladies that God has set within the body of Christ. I don't know how you'll wrestle with this as a community, because that's what communities do. Families process Communities work things through, but I hope that we've given you at least a broad overview of the fact that God treasures very specifically, and He honors those communities that ascribe dignity and ministry and leadership to women in the household of faith. We commend these things to you and pray God's great grace upon you as a community. Thank you.